Hello, and welcome to episode 40 of the Movie Marathoners podcast. I'm your host, Monty, and joining me today is horror expert and film professor, Ryan Terry. Welcome back, Ryan. How are you doing today, and how are you surviving the quarantine? <laughs> hey, Monty, I'm doing just great. Thank you so much for having me back on again. And I um, am probably one of the kinds of people that everybody's hating because <laughs> I'm not staying home. I'm living my normal best life ever because I'm uh, taking precautions like uh, for people I don't know, uh, making sure I stay three to six feet away and I have no symptoms. I'm feeling great. There is no reason to stay at home. I was yesterday, I was figure skating practice and I mean, what better place to be? It's a cool, dry environment and you're not on top of one another. So there's plenty of space between you and the next <laughs> skater. So I think there's a misconception that you have to be home. There are certainly some states which have uh, basically made it impossible to leave your house, which personally, and I'm not a health expert, but I just think it's a terrible idea. Um, I am in disagreement with closing the Florida beaches. I think people need fresh air and sunshine and salt water in order to be healthy. However, I, the after that live cam from Clearwater, the helicopter cam went viral. I think it was a decision more out of public relations than mm -hmm. it was uh, health or safety. Uh, because I mean, it's uh, it's important to the the best preventative medicine out there is exercise, sunshine, fresh air, and uh, per giving yourself mental stimulus that is not revolving around a screen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, as long as you are being safe and uh, <laughs> taking the proper precautions, that is uh, good with me. I am uh, unfortunately in one of those states where you, we are kind of mandated to be on self-quarantine and there's not really anything to do outside. So uh, we just do our daily walks. And other than that, it's pretty much indoors 24-7. But that does mean that we are getting to see a lot of things, um, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of TV, catching up on a lot of things, doing a lot of rewatches while I'm working from home. That's it's very true. I don't have any more time than I had before because I am still working. So I've not, you know, uh, been watching TV at home. The last thing that I watched in theaters was uh, what was the last thing? Uh, was it Wendy? I think Wendy was the last thing hmm. that I saw in theaters or uh, yeah, I think it was. I was at a press screening for Wendy. I think that was the last thing that I saw. Uh, no, no, Onward. Was it Onward? Because I saw Onward in theaters. So I'm trying to remember the last thing. I'll look at my blog here. So the last thing that I saw in the theater was, it was Wendy. So that was the, that was the last thing that I saw. Cool. But now you can watch Onward and, uh, tonight's movie, as well as many others, uh, on demand. Uh, many distribution companies have taken the opportunity to, uh, bring these titles to streaming services early. You know, I definitely am one of the, I'm still working. So thankfully I was not, I mean, I can't be laid off from being a grad student, I guess, but everything is a little bit, I, I've got a little bit more time because I'm not commuting as much or anything. So yeah, I have been getting plenty of time to catch up on things. But this week, what we'll be doing is we'll be running through one of the latest and only films from the 2020 theatrical run, uh, Lee Whannell's film, The Invisible Man. It was released a month ago on February 28th, but because of the coronavirus, it only had a very limited theatrical run. And as Ryan mentioned, it is now being released on VOD. 
So if you have not seen this film and you want to, you still can in the comfort of your home. Uh, I'm guessing that that kind of will come up a little bit as we talk about this, because I think that is really interesting and how, you know, kind of the effects that that may have on the industry going forward is a very interesting conversation, but we'll try not to dwell too much on that and focus on the film itself. But first, we'll warm up with uh, brief spoiler-free thoughts on the film, and then we'll run into spoiler territory where we can talk freely about the film. And as usual, we'll round out the episode with our point two section where we discuss what else we've been watching. So first, let's read a synopsis of The Invisible Man. When Cecilia's abusive ex takes his own life and leaves her his fortune, she suspects his death was a hoax. As a series of coincidences turn lethal, Cecilia works to prove that she is being haunted by someone nobody can see. The Invisible Man stars Elizabeth Moss, Oliver Jackson-Cohen, Aldous Hodge, and Storm Reed. It is written and directed by Lee Winnell. As the attorney representing Adrian's trust, I'm required to read a prepared statement. Cecilia, although our relationship was far from perfect, I thought that you would talk to me rather than run away. Are you okay? What happened to him? He cut his wrists. Per his final wishes, you're getting five million dollars. Contingent, of course, on the fine print. He can't be ruled to be mentally incompetent. It just doesn't make any sense. What? Adrian wouldn't kill himself. Listen, you're getting your freedom back, okay? Don't let him haunt you. Hello? So, Ryan, you are a horror expert and a film professor, so I would be remiss not to start this off by just asking you to talk a little bit about the legacy of the 1933 version of The Invisible Man and sort of the history of the horror character that is The Invisible Man. Because I've never seen that original film, but the, you know, the classic image of the man with bandages wrapped around his face and the sunglasses, that is a very classic image and it is a very classic character and you can kind of see it pervade throughout history. So what's your relationship with uh, that old movie? Oh, The Invisible Man is one of the uh, original universal monsters. And I feel uh, very strongly that the soul of this movie, the soul of the original Invisible Man is alive and well in its 2020 counterpart. Uh, It is based upon uh, H.G. Wells' uh, 1897 novel by the same name and originally starred Claude Rains. And uh, what I I love about this one is it's very much a science fiction horror and how it uh, handles uh, this quote-unquote monster, kind of like in the same way that you uh, th- uh, that you imagine Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. On on mm. one hand, you have the scientific component. On the other hand, you have uh, the horror component. And uh, this was uh, in, uh, important to note that this is pre-code science fiction horror. And uh, for those who uh, are not familiar, uh, the pre-code is before we had the uh, kind of rules and regulations that we have today enforced by 
the Motion, Pic- Motion Picture Association of America. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so during this time, uh, we had a lot more sexual innuendo, romantic and sexual relationships. Uh, we had uh, uh, mild profanity. So, you know, Gone with the Wind is, you know, often, uh, uh, you know, her- uh, I won't say heralded, uh, often um, remembered for being the, the first allowable, you know, quote, curse word in a, in a film. Uh, but uh, that would have been uh, after the um, after the code, and so this is uh, early cinema, nineteen twenties and thirties, and you have a lot of uh, uh, you know drug use, very uh, uh, promiscuous characters, uh, even hot topics uh, like abortion and then homosexuality, and those are all through these pre-code films. So if you take a look at some of these very old ones, you're like, wow. They did that, and then you go through a period in which it's uh, very, very, it's very censored, and uh, then you uh, and up until you know what you have uh, mostly, uh, mostly today. But it's very, it's a very interesting time, and you know I don't, you know, don't mean to bring out you know that tangential subject, but it's important to know that is the era in which the Invisible Man came out because you watch the Invisible Man, the original one. And it's like, wow, they allowed that. They, you know, <laughs> they did that. And so, uh, so I, that's what I, I it's like, I, I, I like it because it's pushing the envelope before, you know, you're, you were like, you know, allowed to push the envelope. And it's, it was just kind of think of it as the wild west of filmmaking. And so mm-hmm. there, there were very, uh, few rules out there. And, and so, uh, the, the plots, uh, both of them are, uh, very different, uh, but I like how the new one uh, was still still felt inspired by the plot of the original, and uh, very much uh, encourage those who haven't seen it to go out and watch it uh, because I, I feel that it holds up very well. Uh, there are some things uh, that don't, but you have to look at them through the lens of 1933 cinema. But it holds right. up just as well as our, uh, you know, Doctor Frankenstein and uh, Dracula, the Mummy. Right. So you have a fondness for the original film, um, and I know that you see basically every horror film that comes out. And I think <laughs> in previous podcast episodes that you've been on we've discussed before about how the quality of horror films can range quite a bit but even when there are horror films that are less than stellar they can still be a lot of fun and Mm -hmm. you know in in kind of a campy way so when this project was announced what were your expectations for this one was this something that you were expecting something on the level of midsummer or was this another one of your i don't know escape rooms or just kind of like you know your february january horror film that was just going to kind of come and go and make a cheap buck oh great question i had very high hopes for it i fell in love with the trailer as soon as i saw it and i i was a little scared going into it because my you know level of excitement and my expectations were so high i was really hoping that they weren't going to be uh disappointed in any way and everything that I wanted for the film was met and even exceeded. I, I was sold <laughs> on that trailer. And knowing that Lee Winnell wrote and directed it uh, certainly helped because uh, he has shown himself to be uh, a brilliant writer and director. And I love how he treats the American horror film. And uh, we uh, first get a taste of his talent uh, with Saw and his partnership with James Wan. And... 
Uh, again, more recently with Upgrade. Uh, Upgrade is, not a lot of people went out and saw it, which is really disappointing because Upgrade was so good. Like, it was solid script, solid directing, you know, just characters that you love to see on screen. Uh, and he was very much, I think, using Upgrade as a um, kind of exploring the idea of tech horror because tech horror is what is uh, all throughout the Invisible Man 2020. Yeah, good point. So I think it was uh, Training Wheels. I you know, won't go as far as to say that it was Training Wheels and how New Nightmare was Training Wheels uh, for Wes Craven for what would eventually become Scream in dealing with meta horror. But I think there's an element of some Training Wheels with Upgrade and, uh, and then what we got with the Invisible Man. So you did mention this briefly, but why don't you just tell me your, you know, general thoughts on the film? It seems like you are quite positive on it. And just for spoilers or alerts, uh, I am also quite positive on this and I'll get into uh -huh. why a little bit later. But Ryan, why don't you start and just tell me what you thought was so great about this film? In short, it has saved the Universal <laughs> Monsters or the uh, Dark Universe, Dark Universe, yeah. which... Uh, uh, was a blip on the radar uh, because of the abysmal Mummy remake in 2016. Mm -hmm. And it, I mean, it's that remake is so bad that occasionally when I watch the horror makeup show at Universal Orlando, the hosts will make fun of it because it's one of the video clips they now <laughs> use. And uh, it's not all the time, but I, it's been two or three times in which the hosts have made fun of it. So I'm like, it is, it is that bad. Pretty soon. Uh, cats will be another video clip that they, I'm sure, will be making <laughs> fun of uh, in the future, talking about uh, the combination of practical and digital effects. And by uh, combination, I mean basically nothing practical <laughs> and all and <laughs> right. all digital. Um, but it, I mean, it, it saved it. I mean, I know they weren't setting out to resurrect the dark universe at least directly anyway mm -hmm. uh, but i think that is you know we may see the dark universe return in the way that it should have been you know inspired by the original and that's uh, at the end of the day that's this invisible man inspired by the classic universal monsters it is a true return to form and it was a uh, powerful statement uh, not only in the critical, but also the audience response that this is the type of universal monster horror film that the audience really wants to see. And it's exciting that so many people did see it uh, when it was in theaters and are still seeing it now. And this is the universal monster, uh, unlike any of the others, that is by far the most psychotic shares a lot in common with the modern slasher even. Yeah, that's true. And especially the way that the film ends, which we will obviously talk about not here, but in the spoiler section is, uh, depending on how you interpret it, very exciting for the potential for sequels. But I think the thing that kind of struck me the most about this film, which is what made me enjoy it so much, is that there is just tension from the first scene in this film. The opening scene of this film is masterfully tense and it, it is relentless. It does not let up the entire time you feel like you are on the edge of your seat 
and you have no idea what's going on and you feel the position that Cecilia Elizabeth Moss's character is in because you too do not know where the invisible man is or uh, where he may be lurking. And I think the way that the cinematography and the camera movements kind of take advantage of that idea that there may be kind of, you know, there may be a person in the dead space of a room. It kind of pans over to empty rooms and hallways and, you know, nine out of 10 times the invisible man is not there, but it Mm -hmm. kind of builds up that tension and that horror just by making you think that he might be there just because it lingers in that moment. And I thought that that was an amazing part of this film. And that's what I thought was the scariest part of this film. Did you find this to be a uh, horror film in the sense that it was terrifying for you or was it closer to a horror thriller? Oh, it's definitely a horror film. I don't know why so often we're afraid to call something (laughs) that's not, quote, a, you know, a gory movie or a slasher or some kind of uh, haunted house, supernatural, like when it doesn't fit one of those cookie cutter molds, uh, it's like. You know, sure. So many people are afraid to call it horror, like like calling it a horror film is somehow slandering. It's like, no, it's the exact opposite. I, it it should. I mean, it, it is a horror film and should be touted as such. Like that is not, you know, uh, you know uh, like it is it's it's something that, you know, films should, uh, you know, a film should really lay into it uh, because it's an honor to be a horror film. I mean, I, it's so I, I I find that those who are like, well, it's not really horror. It's like it's like it can't be horror. Is it is it because it's that good? And you're under the impression that horror movies, you know, by and large, can't be great films. And that's why you don't want to call it a horror film because it's so much better than that. It's like, no, these are these have been around longer than any other genre, and people love these. They, they they make their way into the zeitgeist like no other films could even dream of. So in every in every you know, by any definition, this is a horror film. There are moments in this which are specifically intended, intentionally intended to be horrifying. Mm-hmm. And that is the difference between a quote thriller and a horror film. It is the intent of the writer and or director is the intent to thrill the audiences or just and hold them in suspense. Well, then it's a thriller or is the intent to horrify. And there are many horrifying things in here. And it's not, you know, horror adjacency. This is a horror film, plain and simple. It's not only a great horror film, it's a great film period this Mm -hmm. film uh demonstrates these uh very visceral psychosocial you know characteristics when exhibited by people in real life and not in check are utterly terrifying yeah so this is uh these are the characteristics of a horror film and i you know feel that those who are trying to call it a thriller uh, need to kind of reevaluate reevaluate their stance on horror films because I think people don't want to you know some don't want to call it a horror film uh, because it's just so good and for some reason you know there just seems to be like I don't know it's like cognitive dissonance or uh, something like that. So I think um, I, I don't disagree with you at all. I think my sort of hesitation to call it an outright horror film is not so much um, a detraction from horror films or anything of that sort. It's more of kind of a way to help 
people who, for better or for worse, have a um, un, an idea in their heads of what a horror film is. And for those people, oftentimes they can outright say, oh, I, you know, horror films aren't for me. I don't want to be too scared or maybe I don't want to um, see anything that's too bloody or too graphic. And I think this film, um, you're right, it doesn't tend to horrify and it does, there are scary moments, but I feel like it is a, a bit different than um, a film that is outright a slasher or something like that. There, There is certainly, I feel like, a, a wider range of people can enjoy this film, even if they're a little turned off by some of the more gory and genuinely uh, kind of demented other types of horror films. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes per- it makes perfect sense. And and, and I think uh, to your to your point, Madi, I, I can see why, you know, perhaps to get more people to see it. Yeah, it's not being described as a horror film because it could be a turn off to many people. And to be to be honest, I never really thought about that. I think it's, you know, I'm, you know, because I love horror films so much, I, you know, don't stop to think about those who are <laughs> genuinely afraid to watch them. Uh, so, you know, maybe, maybe that's why. Maybe it's not out of a uh, uh, kind of a subjective view of quality as much as it is making this appealing to those who would otherwise not watch a horror film so uh yeah so i i never thought about that so i I appreciate you uh bringing that point of view up um so and i mean i certainly think that there are people that do say elevated horror for example as a way to kind of be like oh no it's a horror film but it's good which is i agree with you a wrong (laughs) way of looking at it because horror films can be good just like any type of film can be good and just because it's good doesn't mean it's not a horror film. So I completely agree with you there. And I do think that there are people like that. Um, And it feels like that happens every single time a film like this, that is uh, if not outright horror, then horror adjacent or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, There are always people saying that, but you know, I think this film is like, as you said, it's, it's a great horror film and it's also just a great film. And I think part of that is how slick and fresh the film feels. And I'm not totally sure why that is why uh did you did you feel that when you were watching it did you feel like like what you were seeing was just so well put together and engineered oh yeah and it all starts with the screenplay uh, the strength mm-hmm. of this remake lies in Winnell's writing uh you know while all the technical and creative elements work incredibly well it's the strong visual storytelling and plotting that forms such a solid foundation for reimagining the Invisible Man for a 21st century audience. Uh, you find elements from the classic film Gaslight, for which Angela Lansbury was the youngest uh, actress to be nominated for Best Supporting Actress uh, in Gaslight. Uh, oh, wow. I, I don't I don't remember. I don't think she won because she got that honorary Oscar a few years ago. So I don't think she won for it. But she was the youngest uh, nominated for her role in Gaslight. And I believe Gaslight was also uh, Dame Angela Lansbury's very first film. Hmm. Uh, so you'll find elements of Gaslight in there. And uh, listeners, if you haven't seen Gaslight, watch it. It's a fantastic film, and it's one that is uh, was relevant then and is just as relevant today, so I highly encourage you to watch it. Um, but we also have, uh, as I mentioned earlier, elements of the 1933 Universal film. We have compelling characters. 
we have a, a fairly simple plot, but it's our complex yeah. characters that make this so intriguing. And uh, we have uh, a very um, uh, unapologetic look at uh, domestic uh, abuse, uh, specifically uh, emotional and psychological abuse. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, we do see some physical, but it, that doesn't seem to be, I mean, it's bad, you know, but it, that doesn't seem to be the, the worst of it. The worst of the abuse uh, sustained by Cecilia really seems to be really grounded in uh, emotional and psychological abuse. And, uh, you know, that's a real life issue. And this film is ex- is exploring that. This is a character-driven story that does explore the psychological toll that one experiences uh, when one uh, when the world doesn't believe you, and the psychological toll on abusive relationships. Uh, and no matter how disturbing the evidence, I think the film also does move just at an amazingly great pace. It there it always feels like there's something happening or that something is about to happen. And I really like that the script manages to kind of hit the the necessary tropes in films mm-hmm. like this, but it does it in a way that makes it, you know, they almost fast forward through it. Like there is very little of this film where Cecilia is trying to figure out what she's actually dealing with. She very quickly figures out that, oh, it is an invisible man, um, which oftentimes in films like this is kind of a grading part of the film where mm-hmm. the characters have to figure out what the audience already knows. So I really liked that the movie didn't play around with that idea. And then it also didn't really play around too much with the idea that everything was in her head because we've seen the trailers. We know that this is a monster movie. So we know that this is not some sort of, uh, you know, I guess, spoiler alerts for Fight Club, but Fight Club-esque thing. This is (laughs) very clearly happening. um, And the film doesn't really waste too much time getting to the point where it's pretty clear that she's actually dealing with something. So I thought both of those mixed with everything you're saying made for just a really enjoyable ride. And then also these moments, these moments that we'll probably talk about really quickly here, um, just like popping up and kind of completely swerving you or right when you think you know what's about to happen and where the film's going, Leo L like knocks the the platform from underneath you and now you have no idea where you're falling. The other thing I wanted to point out too that really works about this film is that the invisibility effects I thought were not only impressive, but like fresh and something I've never really seen before. Like when he's kind of flashing between invisible and uninvisible, I think that that stuff all looks beautiful and really just visually aesthetically pleasing. What did you think about how this film looked, Ryan? Oh, it was very sleek. It was very polished. Yeah. And at the same time, did not feel manufactured. Right. Sometimes something can be so sleek and polished, it doesn't feel real. This felt real. But it was uh, like a, a perfect. Uh, it was it was it was like a, a jigsaw puzzle in which all the individual pieces just fit together so seamlessly that when you step, you know, your social distancing distance away from it, <laughs> that you don't <laughs> nice. that you don't see the um, the lines uh, in the puzzle pieces, and yet they're all individual components which make up this beautiful picture. And I I love the 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 effects of uh, the invisibility. I to uh, a negative point though. I do feel that I would have liked to have seen a little bit more distortion with the invisibility uh, because I I don't I'm not quite sold on 
<laughs> where it yeah. is virtually unnoticeable. So I really appreciate those moments in which we do have a little distortion or we do kind of see uh, the man behind the curtain, so to speak. Uh, but uh, so, uh, but I mean, as, aside from that, I mean, the effects were were beautiful, just like they were an upgrade. Upgrade has just like fucking awesome effects, and and you can see that you know, very much in in this as well. And I also appreciate how Adrian is kind of like a, a poltergeist, and because he's very uh, he he's sadistic and reclusive, and just kind of pops out and is tormenting more than torturing. And mm -hmm. so we yeah, have a, a uh, poltergeist-like uh, element to his character as well. And that just makes him just all the more fascinating, really, and uh, has some kind of uh, Freddy-like qualities. Maybe he doesn't have the charisma or the one-liners of Freddy, but Freddy's <laughs> fun to watch because he toys with his victims. And I, this invisible man toys with his victims, and and I like that. I think that's much more fun to watch than just you know just outright coming out and killing people. So it, there's a um, there's a method to it. Uh, everything is very everything's very precise. I mean, the film is uh, precise. His character is, mm -hmm. and uh, it, and we certainly have precision in visual effects as well. So I definitely want to hop into spoilers here really quickly, but as uh, just before we do that, as you mentioned at the start of the show, and I did as well, The Invisible Man is available on Video On Demand. You can rent it for 48 hours, and that rental cost about $19.99. I'm just curious, Ryan, is that expensive for you? Do you think that that is too much money for a rental of a film like this and then films like Emma and whatever else is coming out in the next couple weeks? Um, and do you think people are actually going to watch The Invisible Man on at, at home? I think it might be a little expensive for Emma because that film put me to sleep three different times. <laughs> and, and I don't care. People hate me for saying that. And it has nothing to do with me not liking Jane Austen stories or period dramas. I do. I think The Pride and Prejudice from a few years ago is a, a wonderful film. But Emma, boy, did it put me... I was fighting to stay awake. So yes, $20 for Emma is way too much. You're just uh, better <laughs> off uh, going up to Walgreens and picking up an Ambien because it's going to do just about the same thing. Wow. <laughs> uh, so, um, but uh, uh, to your point, uh, no, I, I don't think so. I, in fact, I mentioned this, I think, on a Mike, Mike and Oscar tweet last week when they, uh, when, when they brought this very issue up and, and that I think after, you know, things uh, do go back to normal, and they will, I, I, this is, it will go back to normal, but uh, we don't know exactly when that's going to be. But when that is, mm -hmm. uh, I think we're going to see video on demand, uh, more options for it. And I think distribution companies, especially big ones like Universal and Disney, because they seem to be the ones really spearheading this idea. But Universal and Disney have the cachet and the the pockets and the influence, you know, to be able to do it. And so I think what we may have with this is that the, when it comes, when a studio is going to decide to simultaneously release in theaters, and then if not the same day, a few days later or a week later, maybe a couple of weeks later, 
uh, release that title on video on demand while it's still in theaters. I think what we're going to see is uh, the film is going to cost about, um, say, two movie tickets. Uh, uh, the, the price of two movie tickets, maybe a little bit more uh, as an incentive to uh, still to go to the theater to watch it. Like if you're one, per- if you're one person, it's going to be cheaper for you to watch this in the theater. Right. And so I think movies could be released at the cost of two movie tickets because I go to the movies by myself, but I'm just weird like that. You know, most people, <laughs> a lot of people don't want to go to the theater by themselves. I Movies, theme parks by myself. I don't even think twice about doing it. But a lot of people want to go in pairs. So when looking at the pricing, we may be looking at a system in which the distribution company, the AMCs, the Regals, uh, for uh, exhibiting the films are going to say, well, you know, the average movie ticket for just a standard showing, so no Dolby or anything, but I did see this in Dolby and it was badass. Yeah, I also saw it in Dolby. Oh, and, oh wait, so did good. I? I can't, I honestly can't remember <laughs> anymore, man. Oh, I saw, no, I saw Onward in Dolby. I saw this and yeah, I saw it late, so never mind. I don't know what I'm talking about. So just say uh, $10. And so yeah. it, it we'll just say $10 for a ticket. Um, well, two tickets is $20, and you know, the vast majority of people probably don't go to the theater by themselves. So, so your cost to go to the theater minus any concessions is $20. Well, then the $20 price point for video on demand makes sense. It just seems like it might be difficult to justify spending $20 on something unless it's an absolute must-see when you can just watch, you know, whatever you already have subscribed to, like Netflix or Hulu or Amazon Prime. I guess that's sort of my rationale behind not spending $20 on it. But aren't you going to drop 20 to $25 when you go to see this in the theater? So so what's the difference between dropping the 20 to 25 at the movie theater or dropping the $20 on demand. I would say the difference is the uh, AMCA list, but uh, I guess for most people, yes, you are. <laughs> You're correct. So as I, cause they, they, they don't want to lose money on the deal. Right. So of course you, you can't, you know, you want people to go to the theater. And uh, I think it was uh, Christopher Nolan wrote a piece this past week, you know, urging people to go out to the theater and, and other directors have done the same thing after all this is over. And I think it's very important to have that message out there, but it is very difficult to take something away from a public that you've given them. So right. video on demand is here. I mean, the this new way of looking at video on demand, like almost simultaneous uh, releasing or releasing within a month after it's been in theater, that I think is here to stay. And I feel that the price point for these titles is going to be around $20 because that is the cost of two movie tickets on average you know, at a typical theater. So it makes sense to me that it's going to be 20 because uh, it's, you know, you can't, if you were to make it at no additional cost, so part of the Peacock when it comes out, or if this is on Disney Plus. And so if you were to include it or make it, what is it, three to four dollars on Amazon is the, is the typical rental. Yeah. So if you're, if you're going to, why would you do that? I mean, because th- then people aren't going to go to the theater. So that's so, yeah, I, I think th- I think that's the direction that studios should go, because then it's kind of evens the playing field and encourages people to go out. Because if you're one person, no, I'm not going to rent the Invisible Man for twenty dollars at home when I can go and pay ten dollars at the movie theater. But if I have a whole family and so I'm like, okay, so it's me, 
and say three, four others, I mean, that, that's my family. Well, if I'm, okay, that's 10, 10, 10, 10. Okay, well, that's like 40, 50 bucks right there. Well, it is less expensive for my entire family to watch it at home for $20 as opposed to going out and spending the $10 a piece at the movie theater. So I think people who are single or people who are dating or married, you know, maybe the cost comes out, it's just a wash. There's no advantage financially either way. But where the advantage is going to come from are those entire families, which would not spend the money at all at the theater, but they are going to spend it on demand. So you're still getting money that you weren't going to get before. Yeah, very, very good point. That's definitely true. Um, yeah, so I mean... I guess what we're saying is if you have not seen The Invisible Man yet, you can definitely do it. And uh, it is worth about the same price as seeing it in theaters. So I think what we're both saying is we would definitely recommend you do that when you have a lot of time. Ryan, before we jump into spoilers, why don't you just rate this film out of 10 and then we'll talk a little bit about the ending. Oh, sure. Uh, This is a very easy 8 out of 10 for me. I might even be able to be talked into a 9 Uh, So I'm going to go with a a solid, very confident 8 out of 10 for The Invisible Man 2020. Awesome. And I'm right there with you. I'm actually going to go ahead and go for that 9. I'm going to say it's a 9.0 out of 10 for me. So definitely highly recommends from both of us. I think if uh, the, you know, for the rest of the year, we don't get a single film. (laughs) I would say that this one is number one, if not number two, uh, something like that. So. Yeah, Academy Award nominated Invisible Man, Academy Award nominated <laughs> Elizabeth Moss, Academy Award, you know, nominated Lee Winnell. I mean, this could be, uh, you know, I think in a in a typical year, I think this one would would struggle to get nominations simply because Absolutely. it is a it yeah. is a horror film, and we just know how the Academy, uh, by and large, doesn't really care about these and uh, great horror performances. I mean, uh, hello, Tony Collette from the other year. So, um, I, but I think in a weird year like this, this, you know, provides an avenue uh, for, you know, horror films to, you know, maybe see, you know, their share of golden men that they've been, uh, you know, that they haven't received over the years. Yeah, we will definitely see how it plays out and it'll obviously depend on when everything does go back to normal and <laughs> yeah. all that. But all right, let's let's talk spoilers. I will say spoilers for the invisible man starting now. That's my secret, Captain. I'm always angry. So the main spoiler uh, I want to talk about is obviously that ending, which I think is an amazing ending. I love the way that the ending pretends that this film is sort of, you know, ambiguous and, oh, did Adrian do it or didn't he do it, even though he clearly, clearly did it. I love Mm -hmm. that it is uh, refreshing that we get a film that doesn't have a confession scene. uh, and And it also just makes kind of... Elizabeth Moss's character's decision to just outright kill him, an absolute shock. Uh, I I loved everything about the last like 15 minutes of this film. And it seems like if this is the start of the Dark Universe, then what we're going to get instead of the Invisible Man is the Invisible Woman. Uh, (laughs) What are your thoughts on that, Ryan? Well, we are going to get the Invisible Woman because Elizabeth Banks is going to direct it. 
Oh, is she going to direct? I thought there was some project where she was also going to star. Is that completely separate from this? Uh, I mean, unless something's changed within the last couple of weeks, the uh, last I, I looked at at the news, it's uh, it was a greenlit Elizabeth Banks directed film. And it was greenlit before The Invisible Man was even released back mm-hmm. in February. So uh, we are going to get The Invisible Woman. I don't need an Invisible Woman. I don't really need a direct sequel to The Invisible Man. I like the idea that that this plot and these characters do find their way if we are getting the return of the Dark Universe. I like the idea that this is part of it, but I don't really think this really needs a direct sequel because it's like, what are we... Is it just going to be like Kill Bill? I mean, I like Kill Bill. Kill Bill's great, but I don't think the Invisible Man needs to become a Kill Bill. So this is not one in which we don't need to follow Cecilia... You know, in her, you know, perhaps, you know, getting revenge on other people using the Invisible Man suit, uh, which I love, by the way, because it, you know, you know there was no suspension of disbelief in, in the invisibility because it's like this theoretically makes perfect sense. And so I, I love yeah. how that was uh, <laughs> a certainly I didn't find myself having to suspend my disbelief uh, that much with the invisibility. I found myself having to suspend my disbelief over the uh, incompetent San Francisco police. Cause that was just, uh, I, I, <laughs> that was not a very flattering representation of the San Francisco police <laughs> department at all. Uh, but we, I don't think we need that. I, what, what other stories are there to tell with this, with this invisibility and, so I, I think it's not a great idea to go with the invisible woman. It has nothing to do with the fact that it would be, you know, a, a, a female universal monster. Nothing to do with that. I just think plot wise, right, yeah. it, it's going to struggle. And th- I think this was good. We don't need a direct sequel. However, this can play into the larger dark universe and i really like the character of cecilia i would like to see her i just don't think the invisible woman you know in and of itself is really the direction to go especially directed by elizabeth banks because i'm not (laughs) confident in uh elizabeth banks uh directing ability love her as an actress i think she is incredibly fun to watch but uh kind of after charlie's angels i'm not i'm just not super confident uh in it maybe i can be proven wrong maybe the next thing she comes out with will wow me but just kind of going off of what i've had i'm not um is doesn't still a lot of confidence in me for her Mm. uh, helming the invisible woman i could definitely see elizabeth bang or elizabeth moss's character as kind of a supporting character in Mm -hmm. some sort of build built universe kind of thing like you know she pops up in the background here and there but i agree that we don't necessarily need a kill bill-esque story with elizabeth moss at the center and i don't really see where else that story would go without starting to introduce some of the more fantastical elements to it i i think it will be really interesting to see how they spin this world off into a full-on monsters universe if that's the direction that they do choose to go because there's nothing in here really all that uh mystical in the same sense that like something like 
the whatever the wolf man would need or something like that you know yeah so um i i i I did have to suspend my belief a little bit that I, I do understand that the idea is that it's taking an image of what's around it and kind of mm-hmm. reflecting that. And that's what's happening. But the seamlessness of it is pretty, that's, that's that suspension of disbelief that you definitely need to have <laughs> is like, there's no way to do that with perfect, you know, frame rate or whatever. But um, yeah, I, I, I did, you know, it, it will be interesting to see where this goes. Yeah, what I what I think could happen, you know, and looking to the future with uh, uh, this particular IP and how it factors into the, uh, the our hypothesized return of the dark universe, uh, is uh, she could you know find herself uh, you know working with say uh, Doctor Frankenstein and mm. um, and perhaps providing him with access to. Uh, Adrian's work or Adrian's money or some of the technology uh, because that that we're going to get a definitely tech horror heart a hard tech horror with the eventual Frankenstein and so perhaps she'll be influential in that respect you know or you know maybe she will uh, be uh, like a Van Helsing and I, yeah, I would like that too. And so I think there are certainly directions that this can go, you know, other than the direct sequel and how it can play into that larger dark universe. And, you know, we will eventually have to be introduced to some mystical elements with vampires, with Wolfman. But I feel that, uh, you know, whether it's uh, helmed by Winnell or Blumhouse that, you know, these are filmmakers and leaders of the industry, which have shown that they know why the original ones worked as well as they did. And will channel that into, uh, these future films, you know, whether or not they become part of a universe. And so, I mean, that just kind of, uh, you know, only time will tell what's going to uh, happen uh, with that. But uh, her character is one that is very versatile and you know, can be used in a variety of ways that could be incredibly impactful on this larger idea, even if it, it isn't, quote, the invisible woman. You know, there's always going to when you compare like some sort of cinematic universe, you always got to compare it to Marvel. But um, when you think about something like Endgame that has all this mystical and space shit the original film was that Iron Man film. And if you watch that film, there is nothing mystical in that film either. Mm-hmm. So I guess it's not too ridiculous to presume that this could be the base of the Dark Universe. And then as we kind of get further and further out, they start introducing these supernatural and mystical elements. So I, mm-hmm. I see I see what you're saying there. And that doesn't seem like that big of a stretch. No, I mean, I think we... You know, I think another one that should come out here if we're doing the whole Dark Universe thing again, but doing it correctly, uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde would be another good one because that you have a little kind of like there's a little mystical element in it, but it's still mostly science. And I think that's that's how you form your foundation. So you take Invisible Man so it's like pseudoscience. You take your Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, you know, pseudoscience. And so you take uh, you know, Frankenstein, again, 
science, but we're we're kind of we're turning up the knob a little bit on the on the mystical side, on the you know, the, the supernatural side, and so on the on the magical side, and so we're we're turning up the knob a little by little. And I think, you know, we should start off with the ones which are more grounded in science. And then we can work our way up to Dracula, the mummy, and I mean, just uh, a creature in the Black Lagoon. Like yeah. we can work our, our way up to that. Creatures should probably be the last one because uh, the crap, the, the, the film from a few years ago, the... Uh, Guillermo del Toro's film. Oh, the Shape of Water. <laughs> the Shape of Water. So, um, so uh, Oscar-winning Shape Shape yeah, of Water. Yeah, too many like parallels with that. You think? Too many parallels. So, Creature really needs to be the last one because it, otherwise it's going to be way too close to Shape of Water. And and I, I don't want anything to detract from Shape of Water. I, I really enjoyed that film uh, very much. Uh, so I don't want anything to, to detract from it. Uh, but I also don't want this to the, the creature in the Black Lagoon to be seen as connected in any way to Shape of Water because that is its own, even though it has a lot of, you know, creature in the Black Lagoon elements in it. So I think time-wise, Creature should probably be the last one, which, it, you know, would be true to history because Creature in the Black Lagoon was hmm. the last universal monster. So for just a couple of reasons, but start off with the ones that are that are grounded in science and then slowly turn the dial up for these other ones and then you can just slowly integrate these characters in little ways. And then at what that way, when you get up to the more mystical ones, you already have a solid foundation of these true to life, believable characters. So then do you anticipate or envision some sort of like team up film for them where they take on Satan or something. I mean, I don't, I don't know <laughs> what the uh, Thanos esque villain of this, and I guess it doesn't necessarily have to be. But I, I guess I can see these individual things that happen in a in a larger universe. I can see those individual films, but I don't quite understand why we would ever need Dracula interacting with Wolfman. In like, is there team up films or what? What are you thinking? <laughs> you seem to have thought about this quite a bit. <laughs> I'm always thinking of. Uh... Of horror in the direction it's going yeah, and what absolutely. can be done with it. Um, I mean, look at Monster Squad. That that worked great. And if you think about it, well, there's your shared dark universe right there uh, in Monster Squad. Uh, you also had uh, that in the you know, Scooby Doo, the original Scooby Doo series. You had all these monsters, you know, kind of sharing the the same universe. So we've seen it done before. So there's no reason to think that it couldn't be done again. As far as who would the Thanos equivalent be, that I don't know. Perhaps that should not be a universal monster. Perhaps this, you know, Thanos equivalent should be an original character mm. you know written for the dark universe so that way it doesn't have anything um there's it doesn't have to live up to anything it is purely original and created to function with this dark universe and you know whether that could be if this was charmed you would have the source so i don't know if it what if it would be something uh you know something to that effect but it, it would be smart <laughs> to to create something for it because you do want a central villain eventually. And that villain doesn't have to be introduced, you know, in the very beginning, but you work your way up to it. Uh, but I think they could, you know, 
very creative ways uh, work together. And you know, it, it would be, I think it could be a lot of fun to, to build a universe you now with these. And who knows, the, the eventual you know, Universal's uh, Epic Universe, uh, which is going to be opening in Orlando in, uh, it's like three years or something. I don't remember the time frame, mm-hmm. but uh, it will eventually open. And it's going to have a, a horror area. And we don't have a name yet, but it's probably going to be called the Universal Monster Area. And so who knows, maybe, you know, a character is going to be created for the theme park experience. And maybe that will also, you know, parallel this character created for the cinematic experience as well. Hmm. Cool. So let's, uh, let's just take one step back from thinking about the future. And I I just want to ask if there are any specific moments in this film that you think really stood out to you in terms of horror or in terms of just like quality filmmaking in general, whether it's at a script level or an acting level, or is there anything that you want to point out? Sure. Uh, I have uh, three things that I would like to point out. One, we see very little of the invisible man and I absolutely love it. I'm so glad we don't spend so much time with him. This is very much the same, a jaws concept. And I love Mm -hmm. how we just see very little because that helps to deliver this outstanding tension and suspense. And because we cannot see the invisible man and we don't see evidence of him often, we're constantly looking for him in every corner of the screen. Yeah. So isn't that great? The suspense is achieved, you know, through not relying on the actions of the invisible man, but rather on the absence of him. And once we establish his capabilities and we get that first glimpse at his sadistic actions, you know, then we go relatively long periods with nothing from him. And that's precisely what this film needed. So, you know, withholding what we were expecting is a strength of this film. Um, Winnell certainly takes pages out of Alfred Hitchcock's filmmaking book by transferring that horror on screen to the mind of the audience and in the mind of the audience, the horrors are much more visceral and lasting. And so the Invisible Man's torments of Cecilia, you know, they start out small and grow with intensity. And we are looking for that, but it's constantly withholding what we are anticipating. So he uh, channels his inner Alfred Hitchcock for that. And uh, the, the other thing, uh, one particular moment I want to highlight before my last uh, you know, uh, big point is that my favorite, you know, moment was the the, the paint in the attic. And so yep. she sloshes the paint. It looked beautiful. It was exciting. Genuinely horrifying. Like you jump in that. Yeah. Jeez. Oh. And it should not have been in the trailer. And so I, I wish some of what we have in the movie was not in the trailer, but I think that moment was in there. So, uh, but I still really enjoyed it uh, in the film, but that was the best, uh, you know, jump scare. And that's a jump scare. And oh yeah, listeners, jump scares aren't bad. You're going to hear jump scares are bad all the time. <laughs> Too many jump scares are bad. Yes. Mis- uh, abuse of, misuse of jump scares. That is what's bad. Jump scares themselves aren't bad. This is a great example because it's a jump scare that works flawlessly. Love it. And 
Lastly, I, I, I would be remiss if I don't mention the score in this cinematography because both are right out of a classic monster horror movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, much like A Quiet Place relies upon the power of silence to heighten the senses um, that, uh, you know, that we go through the entire film with and are uh, just constantly on edge. Uh, the Invisible Man also uses uh, strategically placed moments of silence to create a fantastic sense of unease that keeps you on edge. And so it's uh, the the score and cinematography. So we have strong writing, the strong uh, cinematography, uh, strong score, and we have it's a beautiful orchestra. All of these individual elements are working together just like all the individual sections of an orchestra work together. There's two kind of moments, I think, that this film had that where I was just like, okay, I, I am sold. This movie is not only an experience, but an just incredible piece of filmmaking. And they're both moments where you think you are kind of easing in and you think that Cecilia's finally getting some traction and she's kind of digging herself out of this situation that she's in. And then boom, boom. Something happens and you're just like, uh, holy shit, I, what the fuck is going to happen? How does she get out of this? The first one is when she's talking to Storm Reed's character and as the Invisible Man, whatever his name, Adrian's, he whacks Storm Reed and Cecilia gets blamed for it. I remember when that happened, I was just like, oh my God, that is the worst possible thing that could happen to Cecilia right now. So that was an amazing moment. And then of course, the moment that really just broke me uh and kind of made me commit to this movie fully was when cecilia's sister gets killed that moment is i i'm like at a loss for words for how you feel in that moment because you just you can just feel everything falling apart for that character (laughs) and the movie completely changes like the direction that the movie's going completely changes based on that single scene and it comes from out of nowhere so just those two moments alone, I think, make this movie for me. Yeah, Adrian is, or, you know, uh, his brother, uh, in, uh, in conjunction with Adrian, are right. doing everything they can to isolate Cecilia, just like, uh, you know, Adrian was largely isolated from society. And we just know from looking at nature uh, that, you know, a lion is not going to go after a gazelle as it is uh, running and leaping with the rest of the gazelles, it's going to you know, either look for a sickly one, but it's or it's going to find one that it can isolate from the group because that's when we are most vulnerable, and that's why this movie can you know uh, you know really packs a punch because th- that's when we as an individual are most susceptible to the worst uh, that we can encounter in life is when we are isolated from our friends and family and, uh, and safety nets and social, social structures, uh, isolated from our routines. And so that, that's precisely what he's doing. He is isolating her from her family, is isolating her from her friends, you know, isolating her from her home. You know, it's isolating because once she is completely isolated, then she you know, has nowhere to turn and he wants her to come back to him or he wants to, you know, uh, do what he can to just, you know, ruin her life. And that's how, that's how you ruin somebody's life. You, you isolate them from every, you know, positive, you know, support or element in their life. Well said. And that is definitely 
where the like the terror of this film comes from just that relentlessness and the isolation of the character and i think the film does an amazing job at making you as an audience member feel the hopelessness of that situation yes wonderful film Okay, so let's move on to our point two section where we talk about some of the other stuff that we've been watching. Uh, Ryan, what have you been watching with your exactly the same amount of free time as always? <laughs> oh, uh, actually, I I love to uh, talk about what I watched uh, just last night with a friend of mine. We started uh, watching uh, Are You Afraid of the Dark years ago. So this is a rewatch that we started back in uh 2016 because she and i met each other at the movies we actually met each other at doctor strange and so yes you can meet people at movies even though movie Aww. watching is largely a solitary experience <laughs> uh but uh, we were both graduate students at the university of south florida at the time she uh, she still is she's working on her phd so we first connected on uh you know on school um so uh, it wasn't long after that that she told me that she had a hard drive uh, of all the Are You Afraid of the Dark uh, episodes, like every season, I think it's like five seasons. So she had all five seasons on a hard drive. And so she invited me over and we started watching it. But then, you know, life get, you know gets in the way and you know, we watch other things. So we, you know, we, we stopped. Uh, so here we are almost four years later. And uh, she's uh, definitely one who's uh, more socially uh, distance and isolated than me. So, uh, but she does invite me over to her house because she's not really leaving that much. So, so, so she invites me over <laughs> and, um, and so we, uh, watch, uh, you know, Are You Afraid of the Dark, which is available, um, on Nick Hits, which is a channel you can subscribe to individually, or you can add it onto Amazon Prime, which is what I did. Uh, just for the uh, the free trial, because I I will remember to stop it afterwards, because I'm gonna have to just watch the whole thing during the free trial. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, but uh, watch Are You Afraid of the Dark? And I I loved this rewatch because uh, despite Are You Afraid of the Dark being you know quote a kids show, many of the stories in Are You Afraid of the Dark really do hold up. Now, do the do the costumes, the production value, uh, does maybe even like the directing not really hold up? I mean, not really. I mean that I I mean <laughs> I can appreciate it because that's what I grew up with, and so there's that nostalgic factor. But objectively, you know, it's not like a great TV series. However, the stories still hold up really well, and to be honest, there are still some really creepy, unsettling moments. You know, in in this uh, anthology series, and so I I was really surprised at how well you know the 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 plot holds up. Well, I just say maybe the story, not so much the plot, because some of the plots don't, but the story does, and it's still mm -hmm. creepy, it's still fun, and you know I'm reminded of just how instrumental this show was, along with Goosebumps, but how instrumental this show was, you know, in. You know, you know, fostering my love of horror. This was my gateway horror, and I really enjoyed, uh, you know, I really enjoyed watching that. Uh, other than um, reruns of Are You Afraid of the Dark, uh, watching Star Trek Picard, uh, which I uh, may have mentioned on our uh, uh, episode together just uh, the other month, but love watching Star Trek Picard. Very much grounded in what made Star Trek The Next Generation so great, what made Voyager a uh, fantastic series to watch. And so there's uh, the soul of TNG and Voyager 
are very much a part of Star Trek Picard. And he, you know, just goes to show why you know, Captain Jean-Luc Picard is the definitive captain of the Enterprise. Ooh, before Kirk? Oh, before Kirk. No, wow. no, no contest. And we get Seven of Nine from Voyager. Seven of Nine being not only my favorite character from Voyager, but many people love Seven of Nine. So seeing Seven of Nine mm -hmm. come back. And yeah, we of course we have Jean-Luc Picard, and then we have other characters from Star Trek TNG. Next season, we already know that Guinan is going to be coming back. Whoopi Goldberg is reprising her role as Guinan. Oh wow! Uh, and so we have these characters that uh, that we just love because Star Trek TNG was such a character-driven series. Like its sole purpose was exploring what makes us human. So I have never actually seen the Next Generation. <gasps> so is I know I'm sorry. <laughs> It was just uh, for whatever. I, I don't know, man. I don't know why. But is this a f series that you can watch without having seen The Next Generation? Or do you think that uh, it's so much a sequel series that a lot of it is going to be lost if you haven't seen that original series? I, I think you make a, a, a very good point and, and bring up a very good question. And, and the short answer is no, I would not recommend this to somebody okay. who is not um, seen or familiar with uh, both TNG and Voyager, because both, you know, both are a part of Star Trek Picard. Uh, original series, Deep Space Nine, at least to this point, not really part of Star Trek Picard, but TNG and Voyager very much are. So it, you really do need to have seen Next Generation as far as the movies that were spinoffs of TNG, you also need to watch Star Trek Nemesis. Now, oh, Nemesis wow. is not my favorite Star Trek movie uh, by a long by a long shot. Uh, my favorite Star Trek movie is um, in terms of not original series Star Trek movies, but those that were with the next generation characters. Uh, you know, my favorite one is the second one we got, which was Star Trek First Contact. And that seems to align pretty well with a lot of fans and critics that, you know, First Contact was the strongest of the next generation movies. Um so you really need, need you don't need to have seen all the TNG movies, but you do need to have seen the TNG series uh, or at least be familiar with it, even if you haven't seen every episode and uh, need to watch Nemesis. If you if you've seen or familiar with TNG and Voyager and see Nemesis, you are the audience for Star Trek Picard. Star Trek Picard isn't for those who want to this really shouldn't be your first star trek because it's for star trek fans yeah yes right. it is yeah. for star trek fans so so no i wouldn't recommend it to you to watch unless you have watched tng but i'm telling you the tng series uh is uh it still holds up incredibly well the the characters the plots the the themes the message hold up today and this is a testament, you know, to it, why it holds up so well, because mm -hmm. we were craving, you know, you know, uh, we were craving Captain Picard. We missed him. Like, he's like, this is the captain of the Enterprise. This is a strong leader. Uh, this is somebody who is uh, compassionate. This is somebody who uh, is smart. It's somebody who wants the best for humanity and it's somebody who's uh, loyal and just a lot of qualities that we look for in our real life leaders. And we can uh, look to Captain Picard as representing, 
you know, the best that a leader can be. Awesome. Well, so I will not be checking out Star Trek Picard, but uh, it sounds like if you are a Star Trek The Next Generation fan, then definitely should check that out. And that, I believe, is on the CBS All Access, correct? It is. And I know that's the one that so many people don't want to subscribe to. But <laughs> I, I, if you are a Star Trek fan, I recommend subscribing to it, even if you're just going to do it you know, for the... Uh, 10 episodes and then you're gonna you know stop it after that i mean that's what i did with hbo and game of thrones i'd subscribe while game of thrones was on so so i i think it's well worth it to subscribe while picard is on uh because I, I i it's what five five six seven dollars a month I, I forget what it is and so i i really feel that i'm getting you know my money's worth uh just in this series and while you're subscribing to it to watch star trek picard I mean, there's there's other stuff on there that you can watch too. There's the you know the Jordan Peele Twilight Zone reboot. You've got access to that. So I think for the amount yeah. of time that you would subscribe to All Access to watch Picard, you're definitely gonna get your money's worth. Awesome. So I'm kind of scared to talk to you about the film that I watched recently. Uh, I, I held my tongue earlier in the episode, but I checked out this morning actually, Emma. <laughs> Dearly beloved friends, we gather here in this time of man's great innocence. Innocence? Innocence? No? Oh, dear. (laughs) So, um, (laughs) you know, I I actually did enjoy this film. Um, It's not normally the type of movie that I totally vibe with. I do think it's long and it does feel a bit meandery. And I did not sleep super well last night. So I was dozing off at parts. So (laughs) I feel you, Ryan. Um, But... For the type of film that it was, I thought it was fun. Uh, I really liked seeing Anya Taylor-Joy in a role that was a little more outward and with a warmer personality because we're so used to seeing her in films where she's silent and brooding and kind of has this like, fucked up past. And yeah, so, you know, it's it's very nice to see her kind of in a happy film, <laughs> I mm-hmm. guess. But did, Ryan, did you ever read this book in high school? No, I didn't. I'm, okay. I'm, fam- I'm familiar with it. I read Pride and Prejudice, Sense and Sensibility, uh, but I did not read Emma. And I watched uh, the uh, Emma with a, a couple of friends of mine, uh, Raul from the, uh, the Minorities Report podcast and his wife, Desiree, who are longtime friends of mine for like you know, over a decade now. 
And uh, Raul and I had very similar um, reactions to Emma. But I say all this uh, as a preface because uh, you brought up the book. And Desiree did read the novel. And she has seen the uh, the two, three previous versions. The, the one that a lot of people really enjoy from uh, 94. And so she she has seen these versions. And she really liked Emma. And so I think... I think perhaps you have a a greater appreciation for it and you're more entertained by it and you just simply enjoy it more if you are familiar with the past versions, if you have read the novel. Uh, so um, so I, by no means do I think it's a bad film. Simply because it put me to sleep, you know, doesn't mean it's bad. That was my experience. <laughs> so knowing that if you've read the novel that's probably the best way to go into it because you you understand a, a lot more about these characters because the, the costuming and production design is beautiful i mean it, it looks great i there's a, a lot of things you know that you know, objectively i can say yes you know this is you know this is you know, excellent work uh, but she enjoyed it so if you are familiar with the novel if you've read the novel you know i think those are the individuals that are going to enjoy it most that's interesting that you say that because I definitely did read the book. I read it in junior year of high school. I was forced to read it. And, uh, you know, not to be a stereotype, but as a man who was forced to read Emma, I did not love it at the time. <laughs> and, you know, just because it's it's a really long book and I was never a great reader. So, you know, just those type of uh, kind of like period piece novels were not my type of thing. So I, I really didn't like it. A lot of it went right over my head. But, and since then I've kind of forgotten about the book a lot. Like I, before watching this movie, I probably couldn't have told you much about the plot uh, or like, you know, the minor amounts of plot that there actually are in this book and film. But it was almost kind of charming and in a way, almost nostalgic to watch the film and then kind of see a character or a scene from the movie where I remembered it and it sparked something in my head. Oh, I remember that discussion or, oh, I remember that character in the book. I remember hating her in the book, just like I hate her in the movie. Or <laughs> I remember loving this character in the book and loving this character in the movie. And the main one is that Mrs. Bates character, who is kind of the one that just is insufferable and talks all the time mm -hmm. in the movie. Uh, and there's a scene that happens with her and uh, Emma and Harriet, I believe, when they're in a uh, like a fabric store. And as that scene was going on and it was just going on and on and she kept talking, I kind of had these vivid flashbacks to reading that scene and it just going on in the book for pages and pages and pages, just monologues of Miss Bates just talking. And it was intentionally supposed to be grating and funny and uh, frustrating. But I, so the film did kind of hearken me back to those kind of high school days, even if they weren't like my favorite memories in high school. So I did like that about the film. Um, and, and maybe you are right that that is sort of um, something that the film kind of plays with and it's sort of uh, I think it is expecting people to be pretty familiar with the story from the get go. Yeah. So, so I think, you know, you know, perhaps, you know, we, you know, uh, recommend it to those who read the novel and, you know, high school or college and uh, yeah. have a fondness for those characters. Cause I don't think simply being a, you know, a Jane Austen fan is enough because I really like sense and sensibility and pride and prejudice. I really do. Mm -hmm. so I think you really need to have read the novel or even seen 
the previous versions because i i've not seen the the previous versions so i think you know uh, novel versions and and if you have sounds like it's a movie that you're really going to like uh, because it is it is it's it's really pretty i i think it just it has yeah. a it's uh uplifting uh when it's not putting you to sleep and <laughs> it is um uh, it's uh it's light it's light entertainment and you know as much as I appreciate, you know, dark, disturbing stories, uh, you know, I, I also know <laughs> that there's uh, immense value and something that is lightly entertaining. And, you know, especially now with uh, what we are uh, going through as a country, as a world, you know, if there uh, if there was a, you know, if there was a time in which you needed something lighthearted and fun and just purely entertaining you know uh now's the time and so i think emma is one that can perhaps bring a smile to your face yeah it's it's a very colorful film and a very bright film and it it looks like there's a lot of natural light in the film Mm -hmm. which may be good for you now um i will definitely (laughs) say though that the film does it's it's I was surprised because, like you said, there are other Emma adaptations. I was surprised that this one felt so unessential in the fact that, from what I remember from the book, it doesn't really change anything from the novel. I was sort of expecting it to be um, a little more like the favorite, maybe, or like a little more quirky or something like that. But it is very much just kind of feels like another period piece. Uh, in that sense. So it's not, it doesn't seem like essential viewing in the same way that something like, in my opinion, the favorite is that it kind of plays with the period piece and then kind of turns it into this comedy. Yes. The, the favorite and little women, you know, both are essential viewing and are period pieces, but are a fresh take on the period piece. And, And this is very much a paint by the numbers, uh, period drama as, you know, as uh as entertaining as it is yeah absolutely so that is the the i almost said that is the favorite but that is (laughs) that is emma with a period at the end and that is another one of those films that you can rent for a 48 hour window for uh 1999 so if it sounds like something up your alley then definitely go for that all right so this has been our review of the invisible man Ryan, thank you again for joining me uh, in this really contentless time. <laughs> we were we were planning on doing a review for A Quiet Place 2, but then we sort of pivoted because obviously A Quiet Place 2 is not coming out anytime soon. But I hope you are safe and healthy in the coming months. Is there anything that you would like to plug before we head on out? Uh, sure. Your listeners can connect with me on Twitter at RLTerry1, as well as my blog, uh, which, which they can reach at RLTerryRealView.com. Uh, so uh, give me a follow on there. Love to interact with you. And uh, uh, also, uh, Mani, I hope you're uh, safe and well. Same with uh, your friends and family, as well as all the listeners out there. You know, I, I hope you're all uh, very safe and well. And uh, we are going to get through this. And mm-hmm. uh, just look for those times uh, in your own life or through the news reports, which offer a glimmer of hope, because I think that's when it's most dangerous is when we lose all hope. Very, very well put. The intro music for this episode is a piece called Work by Kevin McLeod, and you can find more of his work at Incompetech.com. If you'd like to keep up with this podcast and find out when we release new episodes, you can follow us on Twitter at MovieMarapod or on Facebook 
at facebook.com slash moviemaripod. That's movie, M-A-R-A, pod. And you can always reach out to us at our email, moviemarathonerspod at gmail.com. You can find more episodes of this podcast on Podbean at moviemarathoners.podbean.com. And we are also on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and Spotify. So please subscribe or write a review if you like what we're doing. And any feedback you have to help improve the podcast is always appreciated. So thank you all for listening. And we hope you'll join us again next time when we run through TBD. Who knows what's going to happen in a week? We don't even know if, you know, I'm going to be sick or not. So we are just going week by week and I will be trying to get content out there as much as possible, but keep an eye out for what's dropping next. So until then, bye. Hi, this is comedian and writer, and let's be honest, I do a lot of things. This is Dino Tripodis, the host of Whiskey Business, the podcast not so much about whiskey as it is one with whiskey. Yes, we drink and talk about whiskey, but we do so much more with so many interesting people. For example, we talk to comedians like Greg Warren. You know, I don't want to brag, but let's just say I can walk into a Red Lobster and get whatever. You know, I think the pause right there is probably more important than the word. Amazing athletes like boxing champion Buster Douglas. When a fighter's down and he's looking for his mouthpiece instead of trying to get up. That's when I knew it was over. Yeah, yeah. right? And yes, Bigfoot chasers. Do you believe in Bigfoot? And if so, does he really eat beef jerky? <laughs> the Bigfoot thing is people have seen these and, and I've seen a lot of compelling evidence about it. It's Whiskey Business with Dino Tripodis. Join us for what we call a good conversation with a good pour. You really can't ask for much more than that, can you, people? Check us out at whiskeybusinesspod.com, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.